Well, let's take a look at John chapter 20, verses 19 through 29. If you were able to download the PowerPoint, you know, spoiler alert, because you don't get to see me do the little clicker and see each point come up, but that's okay. You're certainly welcome to follow along there, and, uh, and now as we read together and consider God's word. So John chapter 20, verses 19 through 29, and here's what we read. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of God. Some of you know that a pastor friend of mine, uh, his name is Chris, he pastors a church downtown, lost his son about a year ago, 21 years old, to a heart attack. He was doing an internship in New York City. And it started a journey for Chris of trying to understand what difference the resurrection really makes in his life. What difference does it make for his son, who's no longer physically present here? What difference does it make for him as a father, for his other children who lost a sibling, for his wife, a mother who lost a son? And he spent months unpacking that and then presented to his church uh, his, his discovery process, and they looked at the resurrection for months. And we only have a few brief minutes to consider that. And I want you to understand there's no possible way we could, could say on a morning like this everything that the difference of the resurrection makes in your life. But I know for Chris that at the end of it he said the resurrection does speak to him, him personally, in all those different roles. And, and we believe as well that it speaks to you. How does the resurrection speak to you? 
And I want to talk about three kind of categories, and I, I think you'll find yourself in one of those categories this morning for how the resurrection may speak to you. And, and the first category is for those who doubt. If you were here this morning and you doubt, maybe you doubt whether it actually happened, or you doubt if you do believe it happened, that that God is still at work, or that he's good, or that it applies to you. If you doubt this morning, the resurrection, here's what the resurrection says to you. It's okay to doubt. It's okay to doubt. But it could be that faith itself is the very thing that will move you forward. It's okay to doubt, but it could be that faith is what may move you forward. So perhaps this is a day when you can lean into that just a bit. And what I want to tell you, if you know the story of the Bible, is even the devout doubt. See, that's kind of a preacher thing to do. Even the devout doubt. The people who are very committed to faith struggle with doubt. Some of you know Abraham. And, you know, Christianity looks at Abraham as the father of many nations. And Islam embraces Abraham as well. He's seen as a, a man of tremendous faith. And a lot of you know the story that he was promised to, to be the father of many nations, but he was advancing in years, and he was looking at his wife, and he said, that ain't going to happen. <laughs> he knew she was well along too. In fact, when he was told this, he laughed and he said to himself, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? I have a grandfather who's a hundred and two. Can't imagine him having a child right now. Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? So here's somebody who is so, so, figures so largely in, in our faith system saying, can God really do that? Can he do something that seems like it's just medically impossible to do? It's not going to happen. He doubted. Elijah, the prophet, some of you are familiar with Elijah. He, he was such an interesting figure, and God used him in, in incredible ways. And one time he was up on, on a mountain, and it was sort of a, a duel, a competition between gods. And he said, look, my God that I believe in, the, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, he's the real God. And then the other people were saying, nah, we, we think it's our God. So they had kind of a, a, a duel, as it were, and they, and they said, well, let's, let's test and see. And they, they both built uh, sacrifices, altars to their God and piled up wood. And, uh, and, and first the, the, the prophets of another faith system went, and, uh, and they, they were trying for a long time and, you know, beating themselves and saying, come and make this go up and, and fire and and Baal's kind of smack-talking them a little bit, you know, saying, like, maybe he's not, you know, maybe he's busy, maybe he's on vacation or whatever, and nothing happens. And then finally he says, well, let's, let's try calling on the God of the Bible. I'm going to call on my God to, to light this fire. And, you know, pour water on there. Do whatever you want. Make it impossible. And, and he, he prays, and God responds. And it's, it's incredible. You think, well, if I saw that, surely I would have faith. I would be strong. I would believe no matter what. And it's, it's a remarkable display of God's power. And after this happened, when Elijah goes away, 850 prophets that he was up against. 
And he even prayed one time after a three and a half year drought and it rained. And then right after that, a threat comes from one of his rivals, Jezebel. After he'd already seen this tremendous act of God, we read, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. He came to a tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. So basically he said, I've had enough, Lord. I can't take it. This person is threatening me, and I'm weary and depleted, and I fear her more than I'm willing to trust you. He had just seen the impossible happen. And here he is saying, take my life. Elijah struggled with doubt. Even when he'd seen these incredible actions of God, he doubted that God would sustain him. He doubted that his life was worth living, that he even had a purpose. Even the devout doubt. David, a man after God's own heart, he was a tremendous king. Everything flourished when he was in charge. But he wrestled in song. I think sometimes artists are gifts to the world to express real human emotion. The poetry and the music. One of the reasons you like listening to music is because it's expressing either in rhythm or word something that is happening inside of you. That you can't quite put the, the tune to or, or the lyrics to. And they do it and they hit it and they nail it. And David says, how long, O Lord, how long? Must I go about not seeing you act on my behalf? A man after God's own heart who saw so many great things happening is wrestling with doubt. God, are you listening? Are you even there? And then, of course, we have Thomas. Thomas, the disciple in our text. He says, unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side... I will not believe it. Jesus, after the resurrection, and the Bible tells us that he rose from the dead, and it's quite interesting because some theologians believe his resurrection body was denser, that is, it has like a, a denser aspect, and he walked right through the stone, just like he'll walk right through doors later on. And perhaps that is true. The stone didn't need to be rolled away to let him out. But some say actually for us to be able to come in and see that it was really true. Nonetheless, Thomas didn't believe this, even though the other disciples were validating it. Look, dude, we saw it. It's real. It's legit. He says, unless I see it, I won't believe. And how many of us maybe who wrestle with doubt can really understand that? Unless I see it. I will not believe. Until God shows himself on my terms, on my timing, in a way that I dictate he ought to do, I will not believe it. It's a, it's a week later. I love how that's like, it's not immediately that Jesus reappears to them. And Thomas, finally, seven days later on God's, God's timing, they're gathered together. And Thomas then gets this great gift of seeing and touching the resurrected Christ. Of course, what Jesus says is, blessed are those who haven't seen and yet believe. You're unique. You get to do this. But the real blessing is those who haven't seen and yet believe. That's what verse 29 says. So it's okay to doubt, but there is a point where you move beyond that doubt. 
And sometimes the only way you can do it is simply to believe. Now, here's the good thing about what the Bible does. The Bible doesn't say just believe, okay, without giving you some proof, some evidence. It's not the kind of evidence that Thomas got to see, but there's a lot of evidence to com compile to suggest this really is true. The public crucifixion of Jesus is a fact that nobody denies. The empty tomb is a fact nobody denies. There is no grave to be found for the historical Jesus. And there are only a, a few options that you have to deal with now. I mean, perhaps, perhaps his enemies stole the body. Right? They said, we're going to take this Jesus away. But when his followers start coming out and saying, we've seen him, they would have produced the body and put it to an end. Maybe then his disciples stole it as well. But there were guards present. Not only was it heavily guarded, they're huddled in fear. This is what we see of the disciples. They're afraid. They're not taking the Roman guards by storm. I mean, when the first... First thought of maybe sacrificing for what was going on happened with the cross. They were gone. You know the only people who stuck around there, by the way? It was the women. <laughs> so, fight or flight. At least in the Bible, the men are running away. Of course, there's another alternative, and that is that he really raised from the dead. Josh McDowell, some of you know that name, who has defended the historical reality of the resurrection on countless college campuses over the past several decades, says, after more than 700 hours of studying this subject, I have come to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is either one of the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes ever foisted on the minds of human beings, or... It is the most remarkable fact of history. He's not the only person to make a claim like this. Paul, who wrote half of the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 15. We're going through 1 Corinthians. We're almost at chapter 15. So to give you a little teaser, a little look ahead. It's all about the resurrection of Christ. He says if Christ was not actually raised from the dead, the preaching of God's word is useless. This is useless. What's happening right now, Paul says, it's completely pointless. And guess what? He says, so is any faith that comes from it. The resurrection mattered so much to Paul, and he believed in it so much. He said, what I'm doing is just a joke unless it really happened. And your faith, if it comes from it, also useless. Paul says, those who teach the resurrection are flat-out liars. And you are still in your sins. This is all from 1 Corinthians 15. There's no hope of forgiveness. It's just smoke and mirrors to make you feel better with no actual change. Anybody who's dead is just dead. There's nothing left for them. There's no future. There's no hope. Because that itself is what is guaranteed by Christ's resurrection. You know, the authors uh, talk of the Bible as well, talk about Christ's resurrection being a first fruits, that is the first of many to come. 
So when he rose from the dead, he's proving a number of things. One is that he did conquer death and that we have the hope of overcoming death as well. That's why he did it. He's proof positive that we have the hope of a life to come. And Paul says in verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 15, if all we have left is hope in this life, in a Christ that did not raise from the dead, we are to be pitied above all men. If this didn't really happen, you should look up at me today and say, you are pathetic and pitiful. <laughs> and you know what? You're right. If Christ didn't raise from the dead, this is, all we're doing is a sociological experiment here in people who kind of want to believe in something together. But I don't know about you, that rings a little hollow for me. If I didn't believe this was actually true, I wouldn't waste my time up here this morning. I would go do something way more significant. In fact, anything you're doing is more significant than what I'm doing. And there are plenty of people over the course of history who have said, that's a reasonable way to think. Let's examine. Let's look. Let's see. But based on the historicity of the text, I mean, the Bible has got lots of verification that it is an accurate testimony of what happened. The empty tomb and the many witnesses. In fact, we haven't even talked about this. Christ appeared to Peter and then to the 12, and after that, more than 500 at the same time, most of whom are still living. He says that in 1 Corinthians 15. He says lots of people saw this. And he said, you want to go ask them about it? Go ahead, they're still living. Go interview them. Find out from them. The Bible, sometimes you read these genealogies and you're like, Ugh. But part of why that's doing it is to say it's history. It's real. Here are the people. Go check it out. Go ask them. Go ask Simon of Cyrene who picks up Jesus' cross. Did it happen? Most of these gospels were all written within the lifetime of the people who wrote them. You could verify it. You could validate it. If I made claims about what I did at my college campus 30 years ago, and I said, here I am, I'm the Messiah, I'm healing people, I'm raising people from the dead, I am the Son of God, you could go back, Grove City, Pennsylvania, down the road a little bit, and say, hey, what about this Mark Champagne kid? When he was on the campus, who? Mark Champagne, he claims to be the Son of God. Who did you say? Let's look and see if there's any pictures of this guy or something like that. Oh, you don't remember that guy. Didn't make much of a difference while he was here. He says, what? You ask my classmates. Ask my roommates. He's just an average guy. You could verify it. So the Bible isn't just writing these words for no reason. It's verifiable. Christ appeared to 500 people at one time. You could... You could ask some questions and cross-examine them. If each of those 500 people were to testify for six minutes, including cross-examination, you'd have 50 hours of first-hand testimony. Add that to the testimony of other eyewitnesses, and you'd have the largest and most lopsided trial in history. So if you're teetering on the fence this morning, yeah, you might as well consider it, right? The resurrection says, believe. But it's not just like a blind step of faith. There's reasons to believe, and there are many more. But just dealing with this 
reality, we believe, of the resurrection. There are reasons to believe. So the doubts, maybe, that are keeping you from belief, examine them. Fine. The resurrection says you can. This is what I think is beautiful about it. Even the disciples are struggling. But it could be that belief, that is a small yes, saying, okay, God, I don't have everything figured out, but I want to believe, will minimize, clarify, or even erase some of your doubts. Sometimes believing and saying, okay, Lord, I don't have it all figured out, but I'm willing to believe. It can minimize your doubts. They just don't, aren't as big as they seem to be otherwise. I don't know how many of you have ever gone back to your elementary schools. How many of you, when you were uh, maybe an adult, have gone back to your elementary schools? Has anybody tried to do that? Don't you remember when you were there that everything seemed like right-sized? <laughs> and then when you go back and you try to, you look at your first grade classroom and you're like, how did I fit in that desk? And these tiny little, you know, everything seems so different. Little lockers or something like that, too. I remember them being so big. You maybe even remember the bullies or something like that. And then you see them again, you're like, oh, my goodness. I was afraid of that person. Those words did this to me because things, something's changed. You're looking at the world differently, aren't you? Or perhaps it can even clarify doubts. When you have doubts, if, if God is good, I don't understand why this is happening. It gives a proper context. I have reading glasses now, and it really makes a difference, I have to say. I try to avoid it, and I'm off, I'm on, I'm, I can do it, no, I can't. But I, I'll tell you what, when I put, put these on, it's like, wow, that is really clear. <laughs> now, there's no struggling with it. And, and sometimes faith is kind of like that. Try the glasses on. It can clarify things just a bit it's a it's a, when you look at the world around you and, and we're all struggling to make sense of it try try the glasses come on in for a little while and try the glasses on there may still be some questions that that are, are hard to hard to tackle I, I get that but there's a lot of clarity that comes with believing that Christ did raise from the dead that there's a God who created you to be in relationship with him and the only possibility you have of that is through Christ that he did rise from the dead, and that now you can stop doubting and believe, like Jesus said. And it could even erase some of the doubts. Saying, yes, may f you may find those doubts just aren't an issue any longer. You know, Paul, who wrote this 1 Corinthians 15, he was very upset with people who called themselves Christians. He thought they were wrong. Probably, hopefully, more than you do. Because his desire was to frame them, and kill them. And he met, guess who, on the way to Damascus? The resurrected Jesus. And when he encountered Christ, his entire life changed. And the way he looked at everything was different. And he said, now instead of persecuting people who believe, I'm willing to suffer for them. Because I've got something so amazing. Christ is real. He really did raise from the dead. And you need to hear it. I don't care what price I pay. He so believed it was true, he was willing to lay down his life. And he does. And Christ convinced him of his reality. And I think a good thing to do if you're struggling with doubt today, and this is the longest of the three points, in case you're curious or wondering, <laughs> is to take your doubts to Jesus. 
Take your doubts to him, if you have them. You have, then, the freedom to ask questions. And we see that in this text as well. And, and, and John, John's text, and as, as the disciples are gathering, Jesus gives some time, even, to Thomas, a week. And come to him, ask those questions. This freedom to question is rooted in Jesus himself, who the Bible says was fully God and fully man. Jesus, fully God, fully man, while he was on the cross, as we looked at it on Good Friday, said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, that's, that's, that's a doubt question. God, why have you turned away from me? Why aren't you rescuing me in my moment of severe pain? Are you even there? How can these people who I died for persecute me? Why have you forsaken me? You can rescue me. Where are you? And the silence of God for three days was unanswered until the resurrection. And when he burst forth from the grave, and that answer may not come to us until we ask that question. I have a friend who grew up in a Muslim faith, and at least according to him, one of the reasons he was attracted to what the Bible says is because you have the freedom to ask questions. And at least for his experience growing up, he wasn't allowed to do that. You just believe what we tell you, don't ask any questions. Jesus gives us all this room to say, I don't understand. I don't get it. And, and if you think he doesn't care, the cross eliminates that altogether. The cross says he does care. God sent his only son. He does care. He wrapped himself in flesh. He skinned his knee. He felt your emotions. He does care. But can he do anything about it? The resurrection says he can. The cross says he cares. The resurrection, he can. He can defeat death. He has defeated death. And now you, by virtue of your faith in him as well, can know new life. That's why Jesus came. But if you're doubting that, you can go to the very person who should be erasing your doubts. And he says, come, I know that question you're asking. I'm not, I'm not thrown off by it. In fact, I've asked the hardest question of all. Why have you, my father, forsaken me? And so we need to maybe just say, Lord, help my unbelief. Take your doubts to Jesus. And maybe say, I, I want to believe. Don't you kind of want to believe this is true? Maybe on, a, on the deepest level. You might not be convinced. But wouldn't it be nice if this were true? That there's a God who made you, that has drawn you into fellowship, who has given you the ability to not only know him now, but to have eternal life. That when, when you breathe your last, it's not the end, it's just the beginning of something even greater and better. That the people you love who know that reality now are rejoicing with the angels in heaven at the reality of eternal life. Doesn't that sound good? But maybe you say, I just can't believe. There was a man whose son couldn't speak. He was tortured by 
an evil spirit that made him convulse. And he came to Jesus. He said, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can, everything is possible for him who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. What a great line. I do believe. Well, I've got this unbelief too. Help me overcome this unbelief, but I do believe. That's the beauty of Jesus. He takes that I do believe at the same time as help me overcome my unbelief. I think Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, is a day to remind ourselves it's okay to have doubts. It could be that faith, though, the small yes, the I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. It's the pathway, then, to understanding what that means for a real change and a real hope. Well, maybe you don't doubt this morning. That's fine. Number two category is for those who are fearful or troubled. The resurrection says, you really can know peace. If somehow this morning you're bringing fear through the doors of something, or there's trouble in your soul, the resurrection in John, as we've just looked, says you can know peace. To his disciples, Jesus, three times says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Pay attention. Peace. I don't know how peaceful that was. But they were certainly overcome with fear, and Jesus speaks a word of peace. Shalom. That's, that's, that's what he's saying here. Now, there is a long history in the Bible of what that word would be communicating. But it's the history of our distance from God. And the only way that we could be close to him and know peace, deep, lasting, abiding rest, is through the offer of Christ. That, the payment was for him to get that was to die. But he sealed it. He sealed it with his blood. And then he, proved, he made the, it was proof positive that he overcame it by his resurrection. So when he speaks peace, he means it. He's paid the price for shalom. Now, way back in the very beginning, when God created man, we were all at peace. Not only in our relationship with God, but with each other. And I don't know about you, but when I look around the world today, I'm not sure peace is the word I would use to describe relationships between people and nations. That's a result because of sin. There's hostility, not only between me and, and God, if I'm outside of Christ, but me and others, me and the world around me, even creation itself. I spent a couple of hours pulling weeds up yesterday that I rounded up about a month ago. It, it's not against Roundup. I know that works. It's just apparently there are new weeds that come out too. It's constant. That goes back to the fall. And even internally, do you feel like you're not at peace with yourself sometimes? Jesus says a word of peace here. How desperately they needed to hear that. They were gathered in fear, and they certainly didn't know peace. The one that they were following, the one they trusted, he was dead. And they may have felt like 
This was the, the, the worst thing that could ever happen. The person we're following, he's gone, and maybe we're believing a lie. So when he comes in there and he speaks a word of peace, uh, you know, if you put yourself into their mindset, I feel like if Jesus showed up, he'd be thinking, where were you guys? You know, when I was at the cross there, you weren't there. Why are you huddled here in fear? You didn't really trust me, did you? You didn't think I was telling the truth, did you? You had kind of a right to say that. I know I'd be pretty disappointed with people. But what Jesus does, again, is thinks about them. And he says, I'm going to speak a word of peace to you. Shalom. The price has been paid. You can know peace. He says that same thing to Thomas. Again, a week later, peace be with you. This is the leading word for Jesus is peace. And that's genuinely experienced by his disciples. That word of peace the reality of Jesus' resurrection does something to them that changes the way they live their lives. Instead of being huddled and gathered in fear and knowing hostility, they go out to the world and they lay their lives down gladly because they know it's real. They know it's true. And they know they can have peace no matter what any human being does to them. They can't take away the peace they have with God. That's, that's the basic message of the Bible. You can have peace with God through the shed blood of Jesus. And that peace isn't just some piece of paper. It's a real deep, abiding, lasting peace. But it can only be known through Christ. And he says, look, for those of you, maybe, who aren't fearful or troubled, but instead, third category, those who know the risen Christ and you're filled with joy this morning, the resurrection says you are sent to love others with resurrection power and hope. This, this is what, what you get to do now. You are sent to love others with resurrection power and hope. You see what Jesus says in that text there as he comes to them, speaks a word of peace, and then he says, look, Here's what this is all about. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. On that day when he first encountered his disciples again, he said, I've got a mission, a purpose for you. It's to love others in, in the same way that I loved you. And the Gospel of John, this is at the end of John. When you open up the Gospel of John in John chapter 1, it's all about God making himself flesh and going to a world that rejected him. But he came as the light. In fact, he says in John 3.16, that verse that if you're an American, you've seen it every, you know, uh, football games, at least a lot in the past. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only, one and only son. He sent his son. And now it says, as the Father sent me, that is to a world to demonstrate what my love looks like, now I'm sending you. So this Easter Sunday, if you are in, in the in the category that says, yes, I'm a Jesus follower. You're sent to love others with resurrection power. That's why Jesus said he came. But you're not alone. Who could possibly do that task? I run out quickly. And so he doesn't leave us alone. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathes on them the Holy Spirit. You're not alone. 
You've got the power source, the, the God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, indwelling believers now to demonstrate the hope of the gospel. Do you, do you know what that means? That means that it means a whole bunch of things, but one of the things it means is that nobody in your life is beyond hope. Not a single person who's in your life is beyond hope. It's beyond the reach of the gospel, the good news of Christ. Nobody. Take a look at yourself. Were you really that great of a person? Did you deserve so much? Even if that's as far as you need to look. But don't stop there. We have a picture of the resurrected Christ in Revelation 21, 5, who says, I make all things new. I love that verse. Right towards the end of the story, as we're looking forward, he says, I make all things new. The resurrected Christ is in the business of making things new. Making things that are dead and bringing them alive. Paul in 2 Corinthians 1.9 said, Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. Apparently that's in God's job description. Raising the dead. And so when you feel the sentence of death, I don't know if you've ever felt that before. Dead. Spiritually, mentally, emotionally, you feel that like the sentence of death is on you. That's happened so you can rely not on yourselves but on God. You cannot breathe life into yourself when you feel dead, but God can. The resurrected Christ says, I make all things new. So if you feel like the task of loving the unlovable is impossible, it is. And you can't possibly do it. If you feel like you're so dead, you can't bring yourself to life, you're in a good place. You can't, but God can. Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. And the proof positive is Christ himself, raised from the dead. You feel like you're not having the kind of hope that you need. Then look again at the risen Christ. Because you cannot love others without him indwelling you. Not in this kind of way. That takes resurrection power, people. And you don't have it in you. No wonder you're running out of energy and strength. No wonder you're hopeless. But it's never hopeless with Christ. For those who know the risen Christ, you're filled with joy, the resurrection says. You're sent to love others, but not in your own strength. Not with some kind of conjured up, mustard sense of, I can do this on my own. No. But the good news is you're not alone. And that's what we discover in our hearts. We long for new starts. We long to go from freedom or from fear to freedom. We all have a craving for something deeper than the emotion even of something like happiness. A joy that sustains us in times of darkness and doubt. And that's exactly what we find at Easter. It's exactly what we find in the resurrection. And I know that my brother, Chris, is preaching that message to himself now, too. And here's, here's the good news for him. He's not without hope that he will re be reunited with his son one day. It's true. His son was in Christ. He's in Christ. There will be a family reunion. 
with resurrected bodies. I don't know what those are like, but I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm up for an upgrade. <laughs> I mean, every year that passes, it's sounding better and better, isn't it? And it's, it's not just a fabrication. You know, John 14 says, Jesus said, I've got to leave because I'm preparing a place for you. He's, Christ is, I don't know what he's doing. I remember, I remember, you know, what the Keith Green song, you know, he, he made the earth in six days. He's been working on heaven 2,000 years or something like that. The master carpenter who knows every, everything about you, who's creating some sort of place for you to dwell. For some of you, it might be a tiny house. I don't know. Maybe a mansion with lots of marble sounds cold and unappealing. God, I don't know. I just know it's going to be amazing and that Christ is working on it and, and that the way to get there is not because of anything you've done except for believe in him. That's it. And when, he, when, when that happens, something internally changes inside of you and your desires to live for him. And we need to remind ourselves of that again and again and again. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So on this Sunday, we gather to look at the risen Christ and say there is hope for everyone. There is peace for everyone. And your doubts, I hope, can be erased as well. As you take a look, take a look, ask questions. But at some point, like Jesus said to Thomas, stop doubting and believe. And until you do that, you may continue doubting. And that's not a really great place to be. Now, I pray that God gives you the seed of faith this morning and shows you a vision of the resurrected Christ. Father God, I pray this morning that you would show us again the beauty of the gospel. It's pretty simple. You made us to be in relationship with you, but because of sin... We're out of fellowship. So you had a plan way back in Genesis 3, one day to send your son who would die on a cross, but then take care of the deepest problem that we have by raising from the dead. That is the message we celebrate today. And for those of us who are struggling with doubts, and it could be people who call themselves believers, thank you that we're in good company. All throughout the Bible we see that, even Jesus himself cried out in agony. Thanks that we go to a Savior who understands. And we pray that as we even make that tiny yes, Lord, I will believe that perhaps today it minimizes some of these doubts or clarifies them or perhaps even takes them away. But certainly we look forward this day to understanding and applying the reality of this resurrection message that we can have peace with God that we can love those around us, even the most unlovable, with a power that's not our own. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Remind us of these truths. And may we go forward with resurrection power and hope this Easter Sunday. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.